You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is one of the fastest growing social media applications for your mobile device. It's an app, right? And similar to Facebook or Instagram, it is a place for outdoor enthusiasts to meet and share their passion for the outdoors. So for more information, go to the Google Play Store or wherever you download your apps and download the Go Wild app. Or you can visit timetogowild.com for more information. Let's get outside. It's time to go wild. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. On today's podcast, we're going to talk with Kyle Null from Newbreed Archery. Before we get started... Just wanted to let you guys know that if you go to Newbreed Archery's online store and you want to buy a bow, if you use the code DIY Sportsman, all one word, you can get $50 off a new custom bow. All right, on the line right now, we have Kyle Null, president of Newbreed Archery. So why don't you go ahead, Kyle, and just give the listeners a quick background about yourself and your company. Sure will. Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me on. And uh, the background of my company, my company is NewbreedArchery.com. This month is actually our uh, 10-year anniversary month, so on February 27, 2009, I introduced New Breed Archery to the public, and uh, so it's sort of an exciting time for us. I mean, 10 years, and uh, I started the company in my garage and really grew it from there. I, I pretty well tell everybody, I, I don't know if I was really expecting to build a company. Originally, I was just trying to build a bow, and I made... Uh, made the bow that I wanted anyway and started letting some friends shoot it. And I don't know, several months later, uh, pretty well had a company rolling out of my garage to the point that we had to hurry up and find a building and I had to do a little scrambling around. And I have to admit, even at 10 years, we still do a little scrambling around. We're, uh, we're growing. It seems like daily and we're always trying to change our course a little bit, uh, to meet the needs. One, one thing that, uh, we're very excited about is, We've released that uh, we're direct to consumer now, which is sort of how I started the company anyway. But uh, we went through the traditional dealer network. But uh, obviously, over the last 10 years, we've seen technology grow. We've seen the way people shop and buy for items. And so now, uh, you know, we joined the revolution a little bit and you can purchase a bow. I always tell everybody if you can buy a house or a car over the Internet, you can definitely buy a bow over the Internet. So, uh that's that's the background of our company. I started uh, with two bows and or two models, I should say. And after that, it's grown into we've probably had fourteen different designs over the last ten years now. So pretty exciting stuff. I've got to ask: when you were starting out in your garage, <clears throat> did you have a lot of the 
you know, machining and all these the various pieces of equipment, or did you have to a lot, outsource a lot of that stuff initially? No, I outsourced uh, everything pretty much. So other than the engineering uh, and the string building, uh, I pretty well outsourced everything. And in fact, uh, the string building, I pretty well accessed. Uh, I outsourced that too as well. I mean, I built the first couple of strings, and then after that, um, I realized really quickly I needed someone else you know, until I could get up to speed on that. So what kind of professional background do you have to have to just start a bow company out of your garage? Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a good question. Um, I get asked that a lot. My, my background is electrical engineering. And then at the sort of peak of me, I guess, in my career, I was teaching industrial electronics and robotics which now they call uh mechtronics you know they've got a little catchphrase for everything but um anyway i was teaching that so uh i had gotten into the design side of industrial robots which led me into cad and uh you know which is computer-aided design and that helped me a lot the electrical side obviously was just being able to have that uh, engineering mindset and you know how to start with one process and go through another and um, there's a lot of background before that I always tell everybody I was a bow hunter and an archer way before I went to school for engineering so uh, I think a lot of that plays in for a bow company and then just using the product um, I grew up in a small rural town and I worked in a sporting good my dad got me a job with one of his friends that owned the local sporting good place so i fletched arrows during the summer and made spinnerbaits during the winter. That was my high school job. So that was sort of cool. Um, and then I just watched the retail world from there. The, the bow side of it really comes from, I shot uh, professionally for a little bit and I competed and then obviously hunted and really and truly I was just trying to make the better bow. And I got to a point where I wasn't shooting for anyone. I was just sort of Frankenstein in bows, if you will. And, trying different parts from different bows and then probably that a uh, little bit of engineering mindset just I sort of wiped the table clean one day and said you know what I'm just going to make my own and and I've grown it from there I, I do listen to what uh, the consumer wants in a bow one of the one of the things I hear a lot of nowadays is simplicity and uh, I tell everybody it's really hard to actually it's really hard to make something very simple that you sell to the public, um, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, it's real easy. You can add a couple of gadgets here or there and sell it to somebody and hope they figure it out. Or you can really work through uh, the process until you feel like that it's simple enough that, you know, anyone could work on the boat. And so that's where we are with New Breed is I, I actually say that doing the engineering uh, to make something simple is actually harder than engineering something that I could just you know, okay, we'll tweak this, tweak that, you know, good luck with it. So, uh, anyway, I don't know. I, that probably dove off into somewhere, but that'll just tell you what all I've had to do to get there. So, it, and I think a little bit of entrepreneur um, mindset too, you know, hey, I want to do something. And I had a, a small archery shop as well. I think it just progressed from a small archery shop into, you know, let's turn it into a bow company. Yeah, so was that first bow, was that more of like a, a target-inspired bow to try and get you better scores on the range? Uh, it was probably a little bit of both. Actually, I designed the first two bows that I designed. One was a 33-inch axle-to-axle, -axle, 
and one was a 37 inch axle axle the 33 inch axle axle i probably was trying to come up with that all around 3d hunting whole nine yards bow because that's what i was doing and then the 37 inch bow was truly i was trying to more focus on the target so when i designed both bows they almost happened simultaneously if that makes sense because i couldn't make up my mind what was the best bow and uh so they both wound up so i guess yes to answer the question yes it probably one of them was target and one of them was definitely for hunting so gotcha and i mean even as i look on your website now you guys have bows that are obviously target bows you know that real long axle to axle mm-hmm. And then a couple of different models, like kind of like the BX32 is like your typical, like short axle to axle kind of do it all hunting bow. And then that 35 inch. So it's like between 32 and, and, uh, like 36, 37 inches. It seems like that whole kind of gamut is covered. I'm curious when you're, when you're shooting the bows, I, I myself have more experience shooting shorter bows, but how much of a difference do you see when you shoot like a short axle to axle bow versus a long axle to axle bow? You know, over over the years, it's changed um, drastically. I I've noticed um, a slight difference, but if you look at our bow design, so when I when I do the BX32, when I do that design, it doesn't have your typical six inch brace height like you see on most short axle to axle bows. You know, and some bows are getting down to 28 inch axle to axle, and then they're running five to six inch brace heights. If you look at when I do a bow, if it's 32 inches it'll actually have a seven and a quarter inch brace height. So what I'm trying to do is adjust for the shorter axle axle. I'm actually lengthening the brace height to, to keep the, uh, basically for a better word, shootability in the bow or the accuracy. And, but I've always said that a, a little bit longer axle axle is a better performer. The number one variable I have whenever I'm doing a bow design is really the human uh, if we put all these bows in a machine, they shoot great. But I've got to sort of take in uh, account that somebody's going to be using that bow, and not every person is going to be exactly the same. And they're going to have bad days and good days. And uh, you know, I, I can even dive off and tell you, you know, what you eat and, and what you don't eat, and what you drink and what you don't drink will affect the way you shoot a bow. As weird as that sounds, but um, you know, so. I have to play with that one variable. And so that's where I feel like the longer axle of axles, they actually will let you make a couple of mistakes, um, but won't show up on the target end of it. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it makes, it makes sense. I don't know if the reason is because you got a longer distance from kind of the, the fulcrum where the grip is that it makes it just that much harder to move the bow around that much harder to twist or if there's other things going on. But I mean, that's something I've always heard and just have never really dove that deep into just because of the, I like the shorter personally, just from like a tree stand or shooting off the ground for hunting. Right. And, and so we need to make the shorter axle axle. That's why um, I get asked a lot of times, why don't I offer anything below 32 inches right now? And yeah, I never say never. It's just when my average person that I have to fit fits between that, really and truly that 27 to 29 inch range that's about the average draw lengths that are that are out there that's the most common now obviously we got some guys that are 30 inches and we got some guys that are you know 25 inches and we got some ladies that are 23 inches and we got ladies that run to 27 inches so uh, but on average 
What I try to do is base most of my designs around that 27 to 29 inch draw length. Um, and you're exactly right. The distance from the axles, if you think about it, when you try to torque a bow, um, what you have to look at is if the distance is greater between the two, there's less of a pinch. So you can get away with a little bit more, you know, mistakes and you don't see it downrange where you do with a short bow. Once again, that's one reason that I do the longer brace height is to sort of account for the axle axle being a little shorter. Um, and I'm not saying that bows out there that aren't, you know, that are in the 28 to 30 inch to, you know, 32 inch range that they don't shoot good. All the bows are shooting good now because the tolerances are held better. The materials are better. There's just a lot of things out there, but I'm still a firm believer that you need a little bit of length. Um, going back to what you mentioned about the tree stand, I'm a tree stand hunter. And so 32 is that magic, 32, 33 is that magic number. And I get a lot of people that, they pretty well say, man, I, you know, I got to have a short bow. I got to have that, you know, 30 inch bow to hunt with out of a tree. And, and I'll just be honest with you. I think a little bit of that is some marketing that's out there by, by other companies. And, um, you know, if you take a, a years ago, if you go back to when bows were almost 40 to 45 inches long, and now we're down to, you know, 35 and 32 inches, that's pretty short. And 32 inches inside a tree, when you're at full draw, you're going to get plenty out of it. I think when you start getting a little lower, you're just creating more of a string angle, which we call string pinch. And then actually the distance from your eye to your peep sight gets longer, which anytime you make that relief there, you know, you're going to cause some accuracy issues. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's really weird. I always get asked, am I ever going to do anything? And will I make anything shorter? Absolutely. It's just a matter of making it work to where I feel like it's the most accurate bow. That's, at the end of the day, I want to sell a bow that everybody enjoys shooting, but also at the same time can hit what they're shooting at. I've always been that longer to axle axle fan personally. So to see you have more of those that are 34 inches and above compared to below that 34 inch kind of threshold to me is really good. You know, you talk about, like you said, people with tree stands, they want to go as short as possible. There's plenty of guys out there that hunt with 64 inch long bows out of tree stands and have no issues with it. So, I mean, that mindset to me is kind of crazy. They just want to go small and light as possible, you know, but they are sacrificing some things like that. So it's good to see a company that still stays to that 35, 36, even 37 inch axle to axle range. Yes. And so the ETX 35, um, I'll give a little history on that bow. We, uh, we sell it, but I originally, so I told you the company started or I released to the public in 2009 and I'm one of those companies. I do listen to what people want. And so I had the two bows. I had the 37 inch bow and I had the 33 inch bow and quickly within a, a year or so, I was getting a quick demand of, man, I, you know, I love both those bows, but I can only afford one bow. And so I introduced a bow called the Eclipse in 2011. And that bow was the first 35-inch axle-axle bow Newbreed had, and it just seemed right. It was right in between the two numbers. It worked good, and I sold that bow. The catchphrase for that or the little marketing term I had at the time for that was the do-all bow, and that bow stayed on in our lineup until uh, 2015, and honestly, I strictly took it off because I just had a lot of people that said, you know, we're tired of seeing the same thing <laughs> out of a 35-inch bow. And so I took it off the market in 2000, 
uh, 15, although it was still selling really well, I just said, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a break. And somewhere between 15 and 18, I had enough people going, man, please sell me an Eclipse. Please dig up an old riser. Please do something to a point that I was like, you know, I, and I'd always had in the back. I'd been working on the boat for a little while anyway. And uh, I said, you know what, I'm almost finished with this other bow that I was working on and I might as well just finish it the way I want it. And really and truly back then I, it was coded, uh, the clips 2.0. And then I just said, well, let me make some final tweaks to it. And I brought out the, uh, ETX 35 and that bow right now is a top seller for us. I mean, the BX 32 is probably our true flagship. If we had to go by sales right now, just because we've, we've come out of hunting season but uh, we're starting to get orders daily for the ETX. And that's another thing, too. We've moved direct to consumers, so I can definitely see what the consumer is wanting. And there's a lot of there's a lot of consumers that like that 35-inch, like you mentioned. And I get a lot of guys that they are still looking for that one bow to do it all with. I mean, bow prices have gotten, over the years, they, they've seemed to be getting out there and getting real high. And so, you know, I you know, people can't run out and afford two or three different bows to do two or three different things with. And I truly believe if you got one bow that you can do everything with, you're going to be a better hunter if you're target shooting with that bow during the summer, and you're going to be a better target shooter if you're hunting with it during the winter. So it's sort of one of my beliefs. Yeah, you can definitely become one with the bow and really learn it if you're shooting it year-round for pretty much everything you do, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so we do offer the ETX 35 and it's going to be hard to pull that bow out of the lineup. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. It'll probably be here a little while. I may make a couple more tweaks, but that bow just shoots great. And, uh, the BX 32 is actually a great bow. It, it was sort of the, the bow that I was on the fence about what should I, should I make a 32 or go back to a 33 or should I go down to a 30? I went all all around the world with that bow because we had introduced a, a bow in 2015 called the blade and we actually won three or four different awards that year for that bow um and i was really excited about that it was a 34 inch bow so anyway you can tell i like the longer stuff but there was a lot of technology in that riser if you look at the bx32 one thing that i sell that riser on it does look really nice but the way that I actually designed the riser to have the bracing on the ends and then the little, I call them the little reverse C's or a lot of people call them the earlobes or whatever that's, they are, everybody's got a name for it. But um, that look that's in the riser, what those actually are is they're, they're focal points that actually focus the vibration to where they actually run the vibration into each other. So I don't have to have a, a riser dampener. I, I'm a true believer in this. Anything that I have to add to the bow to do certain things with it's always going to be something that's going to fail so if i can eliminate in my design if i can eliminate anything that i'm adding to the bow that can fall out freeze up or basically just you know uh deteriorate then i want to take it out of my design if i can and so you'll see i don't have a lot of limb dampeners and uh rubbers hanging all over the bow in fact the only rubber that's in the bow is the little bow jacks that's around the string stop and then in the grip, that's actually the same material Bojax makes those for me. So that is one thing I outsource is the grip because I want that particular material. Gotcha. 
Yeah, that <clears throat> that riser definitely is unique, and and on the blade, I noticed that that stayed the same. Because um, like on my other my GX uh, GX2, that one is kind of more similar to the ETX, just in terms of how the riser looks. Mm-hmm. Right, and so I'll have to share this with you. The the blade really, when it went to the BX32, that riser design set Newbreed apart. That's what a lot of people said, okay, that's a Newbreed. You can, you can see it across a room somewhere from a side profile, and everybody goes, that's a Newbreed, if they are familiar with our brand. Yep. And that's one thing that I did have to have. I will admit I had to have something that separated our brand um, but at the same time, I get a lot of guys that are like, Ooh, that riser is a little too wild for me. I need something more traditional. And, uh, that's why you see the ETX and the, uh, the GX two design the way they are is because I was trying to fit that guy that just could not get his mind wrapped around that he was going to shoot the blade that, you know, so, uh, I would definitely say it's a little older crowd, you know? Yeah. I was gonna say, I like the, <clears throat> I like the look on that BX 32 that that's um that cut out on that riser i think it looks cool but i'm a young guy so yeah i like it too i i have to admit I, and i consider myself an older guy i'm 45 <laughs> but uh you know i do like it i like the wilder stuff and i i will definitely uh be more focused on that the more and more that i'm now going to direct to consumer i actually see that uh because i listen to my my dealer network you know, when I do a lot of designs, but now that I'm going more direct to consumer, it seems to be that I'm getting a little bit more feedback that I need to make the bows look more like the BX32. So obviously I'm going to stick with that, that design to some degree. And I think it's good as a branding standpoint, you know, to have that distinctive type of riser that, like you said, is visual from across the room. So people can reference, Hey, that's a new breed bow. Yeah, I totally agree. I, so I'm going to admit this, I was a bow hunter. I went to school for an engineer. I definitely wasn't a business guy until now. So I am learning a lot about business in a hurry. In 10 years, I've, I've probably learned a lot about marketing and, uh, and how things should be. So anyway, now, now I'm sort of adding that to the mix. So if I can get my engineering right, which I feel pretty good about, and if I can, uh, I know how to operate a bow, so I feel good about that. So now I just got to get my marketing skills up to speed, and we'll be in good shape. Um, for the cams on the bows, is it the same cam system for across pretty much every bow you make? Pretty much so. Um, I worked on that cam a long time, and, and I mentioned that we're a 10-year-old company, but obviously before uh, before I actually introduced this to the public, I had to have some design time. And so the cams have changed over the years. I mean, if you look us up, you can see where the cams have changed, but it stayed in the same wheelhouse Um uh, you know, or the same family to a point. Uh, originally, when I the first bows I came out with were draw length specific cams, um, and then I found out real quick that wasn't going to work. Trying to, you know, it worked good for selling to my buddies. It did not work good for selling to the rest of the world because every time they needed to change a half inch of draw length, uh, it required a whole cam change. <laughs> so that that turned into uh, a hurry up and let me figure this out. And then uh, I went to a mod system to where i have a piece mod but the cool part about my system is the one thing that i saw a need for is people were basically buying mods and either if you have one cam 
you could have one big cam that covered everything from 25 to 32 inches. But if you were a 25 inch draw, you were losing some efficiency. And if you were a 32 inch draw, you were losing some efficiency. So I came out with a, uh, basically another system that it had three cams inside that. So they're all built similar, but they're, they're basically the three cams. So you got a small, medium and large cam. We call them a SL, RL and EL. And, uh, the most original I could come up with is short length, regular length, extended length. <laughs> so uh, anyway, everybody's like, how'd you come up with those names? I'm like, there you go. Uh, but the cool part about my system is there are other systems out there that use the one, two, three cam type system, but you have to have a small mod. You have to have a medium mod and you have to have a large mod. The neat thing about when I design my system is I have one set of mods that fit all three of those uh, cams so there's not a thousand mods floating around and um you know i always try to be politically correct so i don't mention name brands but when i used to sell a certain brand when i had my own dealership i bet you i still have a garage full of uh small mods medium mods and large mods <laughs> you know because they just got out of control and uh so i tried to make a system that you know if, if a guy because what i hope for at the end of the day is that my bows last pretty long time. In fact, we offer a lifetime warranty uh, on the bow and lifetime being seven years. I mean, anything longer than that, you know, something has gone on. But what I really want is, you know, now that I'm a 10 year old company, I still get bows that I still talk to people that bought my very first bow that are still loving that bow or they pass it along and somebody needs it, something changed on it. So what I wanted was to be able to create a system that was backwards compatible uh, and I have done that with the mods. So answering your question, I guess, sort of in a lengthy term is, yes, they're all the same, but they have adjusted over the years. So you probably could not take my 2.5 system and put it on a 2009 bow. That's not going to work. But, um, you know, pretty well 16, well, 16, 17 and 18 bows have all been about the same cam system right now. Gotcha. So. Talk a little bit about why you went with the two-track cam system as compared to some of the other cam styles that's out there. Well, I do. Uh, I, right around that time frame that I was starting, the the three-track system has been out a long time, and there's several companies that have used that. And that's probably what I originally started with uh, when I was messing around with the designs that I was going to do my own. The, the number one thing that I saw with the three-track system is cam lane. Uh, the only way you can get it out of, you can't really get it out of a three-track uh, three cam system without having to do some shimming or moving around. And then you have to make some adjustments to the riser. And I just never liked the cam lane that you got out of a three-track. Uh, it didn't make any sense. And right around in that 2007-8 range, the two-track was you know, coming around, some of the guys that were in the industry, we were we were talking about it a little bit, and it made sense. And uh, I will admit, um, the cams are my design, but the the utility to use the two track it belongs to someone else, so I have to license that patent, and and that's familiar with a lot of things you have to do. So I designed the cam, but to use the two track, I have to license it. And so I talked with the person that I licensed the cam from, and uh, you know, they explained why they liked it so much and i got a look at it and then i started playing around with it and i was an early adopter of it i think i was the first 
actual bow company that licensed that uh, patent. So I was the first guy to actually say, okay, yeah, I'm going to license this. I'll pay you some money for it. So I probably helped that person um, get down the road as far as getting their patent because pretty well getting a licensee helps a lot. So anyway, so we were in development with that. And um, I don't know. I just, as I played with that system, I could totally get almost zero camlene out of a bow without having to use a yoke system. And that's the only other way that you can get camlene out is you're going to have to have some form of a yoke system. But I found out with this one, you didn't. And so I went with it for the simplicity of it. Two cables, one string. I didn't have to have a cable that had to be a split cable. I didn't have to have some kind of yoke device that hooked up. So that would explain why I went with the two-track system was now I could get the camlene out, but then I could also keep it simple and have two of the same uh, style cables and one string and not a bunch of extra stuff that was going to cause, you know, if somebody cut the outer side of a yoke system or something like that, it's a little bit harder to work with. And I didn't have to coach somebody into doing yoke tuning, you know, with the bow either. From a tuning perspective, are there any inherent advantages or disadvantages of that type of system? Uh, you know, really and truly, I've, I've looked at both of them. Uh, once again, uh, I'll never say never, you know, I, there's some advantages to a yoke system I could see, but I can't find one currently that just justifies me totally making a change. Um, is there a future one? It possibly could be, but I think there's some, some nuances to the yoke system that need to be changed first. And, um, you know, I'll admit I've, I've been developing one for a little while and until I get it exactly like I want it, I'm not going to release it, but I feel like I've sort of, you know, found the better mousetrap on it currently. So we'll see what happens with that. I, I'm, I'm testing it now currently, but it's just not, it's not exactly where I need it to be. It's a little, little too much to give to the public right now, if that makes sense. I, I'll go back to tell you, I could release it today and be fine with it, but I like things to be very simple to operate and work on. Gotcha. I mean, I, I'll say I don't really have many complaints with the, the system that is currently out there. I mean, yeah. from the time that I've ever gotten one of your bows, it's always been spot on in the cam timing when I check it on my draw board. And I mean, tuning is, is pretty much always a breeze just with, I usually just set the rest up yeah. and, and I don't even really check the center shot that much. Cause I usually end up adjust. If I set a perfect center shot, I might end up adjusting it anyway on the rest, um, right. just for how I hold and, you know, um, shoot the bow. But yeah, it's, it seems like once it's set up, I don't have to really touch it ever again. Well, and that's one thing I'll go back and say. So with the two-track system that I currently have, the reason I haven't gotten away from it is it just works. And, and it's a very great system the way that I've, I've come up with it. And so a little bit of insight on that is I worked on the cam system way before I worked on the rest of the bow. Um I have to admit that I, I probably have, oh, I don't know. I probably, I probably have to count them up, but, uh, I was probably close to probably 250 plus designs before I, I landed with the one that I'm currently using. And what I mean by that is I tweaked on them over the years and, and different things. But the one thing that I did is once I got the cam system, and I think I've told a lot of people, this is I built a bow around that cam system instead of the other way around. What, 
had happened over the years uh, that I've seen happen is, you know, the one cam was pretty popular and a lot of uh, a lot of companies adopted it. But what they did is they basically had to take the one cam, the system itself, and then adopt it to maybe a riser design they already had or a limb configuration they were already working with. And so I don't think that's the proper way to do it. I think you got to pretty well get what drives the bow working first and then build the bow around that. And so that's what I've done at Newbreed. And that's, I used to, I used to joke and say that's one of my trade secrets, but really and truly that is what makes us different is I had taken the time to build the cam system, get the cam system working correctly, and then build the bow around that cam system instead of just trying to adopt it to a riser already had or a limb configuration system already had or something like that. So uh, I've seen that with other uh, companies that use a two track. They, they were already in business and they had some other cam systems and then now they've adopted the two track system, but they basically just put it on a frame they already had, if that makes sense. And that's the reason you hear a lot of people having to do shim tuning or, or something along those lines is because they're having to move things around. I've, we definitely have the shims there uh, where you can do a little tuning if you want to, but most everybody is very similar to what you just mentioned. They just get the bow, they set it up for themselves, and within one or two shots, it's uh, paper tuned. And I always tell everybody, paper tuning is awesome. It it gets you uh, it gets you started, but I am a true believer in paper tune first, then really take the time and do a little bit of walk back tuning, and that'll fine tune your bow. Yeah, I for me personally, yeah, like like you said, paper tuning is a good first step, and then usually, I, I'm a bear shaft guy personally. I I just okay. I find that I like to watch the the flight of that bear shaft, and I'll shoot it out <laughs> to as far as I can feel comfortable not missing the target <laughs> until I get that thing set up. But then what that seems to really show you too is just how important like your grip is, you know, how exactly mm-hmm. you're positioning your hand because that makes a world of difference. It seems like on the bear shaft, which is something I never learned when I was just doing like walk back or paper tuning. Right, right, and uh, yeah. If if you had, if you had to do all three, it would be paper, walk back, and then bear shaft. <laughs> so if if you wanted to do all three of them, I think that would be sort of the level. Or you can go straight from paper to, like you said, bear shaft, and that would probably. Um, I I sort of float in between. I I'm I'm not a a great bear shaft tuner. I mean, I can do it, but the reason I don't do it for myself is I I know me and i know what works for me so i use wallback tuning it just seems to be the best one for me gotcha when you're talking about the the shimming my guess is probably Mm -hmm. not all the listeners know what that means Uh, how would somebody know if that was something they wanted to play around with or if there was something they needed to do um i probably in all honesty uh if they are just having one of those situations where they're drawing the bow back. They're shooting the bow. They've moved the rest left to right, up, down, whatever they've done. They're not seeing any change. They've changed arrows. They've changed rest. They've, they've tried a little bit of everything, but they're still getting the exact same uh, flight. Or I'm going to go with paper tune because I think you're really going to find your shims in the paper. You're not going to really if, – if you're already out to bear shaft tuning or walk back tuning at that point, you're pretty well past the shim point, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I, I still think everybody should start with paper. And so if it's one of those where you're getting the same consistent rip or tear, I should say, um, 
every shot, that's probably when you need to play around with the shim a little bit. Uh, on our bows, we strictly allow for the shimming to adjust to the shooter, not really to try to fix the bow, if that makes sense. But there's a, a 20,000 shim that can be moved around uh, in the bow. And, you know, we definitely can walk you through it. I really don't do a video on it because it's one of those that it's sort of been a catchphrase in this industry. Oh, I need to shim my bow. Oh, and no, you might not need to shim your bow. You might need to look at your arrow setup. You might need to look at your rest, you know. So don't instantly go to shimming if you're getting uh, tear in paper. First, try everything. But if you've tried everything and this is the last resort, then I would probably say it's time to shim. And usually all the shimming's doing is it's moving that cam just enough to, to really make the bow fit you, if that makes sense. So when you set up a bow initially, um, is it, I guess, because this is an interesting question for me because you obviously have like a, a very high level and even like a tournament level background. Is it better to set the bow up like the bow is intended to be set up and force your form to be able to fit what that bow means and that'll help get you better form? Or is it better to set the bow up initially and just shoot how you're going to shoot and then adjust the bow to be able to fit you? So the, to answer that question, here if you are a new archer, learn how to shoot the bow. If you're a guy that's been shooting as long as I have since, a, you know, I pretty well started at a, a young age before I was a teenager, I'm probably not going to change my form by now. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, you know, by this point, my muscle memory is what it is. And so I'm probably going to wind up adjusting that bow to me. Um, but if you're a new shooter or you know intermediate shooter i would definitely say you know try to try to shoot the bow the way it is now some bows this is why you need to shoot bows and and see which one fits you the best but um you know i'm probably more along the lines of think about this if you're in if you're in a situation either target shooting or you're under pressure and you got to make that last shot and everybody's standing around watching you you're probably going to go back to whatever naturally works for you in the beginning or or uh, you got a deer or whatever size animal or whatever type animal in front of you that's, you know, the trophy of a lifetime to you, you're probably, your muscle memory is probably going to take over, your brain's going to take over. So, you know, you got to play that odds. Are you going to be able to change your form and talk yourself through all these things, you know, in the moment? Or do you just need to change the bow to make it work for you? So I, I know I probably didn't answer that exactly what you were expecting, but um you know, I probably would leave the bow alone and just shoot it. But if I couldn't get it to do what I wanted over a course of a, you know, a couple of weeks, I would probably then change the bow to me, to my, my form, you know? Gotcha. That makes sense. That's a, it's a question that doesn't really have a simple answer. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it was tough. To, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think, how do I answer that and sound <laughs> correct? And, you know, what I really, what you really need to do is get proper form regardless. But if you've been doing this a long time, I'm not saying that your form is bad. Maybe your form is, is perfect, but it's perfect for you. And you might have to adjust the bow to fit you a little bit. One other thing that you guys have in your bows, um, is the titanium, um, limb bolt. Is that something that is just there for corrosion resistance? Does it have any kind of strength impact over like steel bolts? Um, does it affect kind of the vibration dampening of the bow? I've seen a couple different things just in regards to like marketing regarding titanium limb bolts. What's your take on it? Yep. So the reason we do it 
the very the very first reason I started with titanium was strictly for the vibration dampening. Uh, if you remember when I was talking about this, I was trying to eliminate anything that I'd have to put in the bow that might could fall out or uh, deteriorate or whatever. You know what I mean? And so when I started saying, okay, how can I take some some vibration or or the feel out of the bow? What can I add to the bow that will be a permanent fixture? Limb bolts was first thing that I thought of and I started doing some research and the titanium was definitely a hit. Secondly, I did it for basically weather resistance. It just makes sense. And probably the last thing I was looking for was strength. I mean, obviously steel is strong enough to do what it needs to do. It's almost in every bow out there. Um, so I originally found titanium for the vibration quality. Then I looked at it because it was weather resistant. And then lastly, it is, it is very strong. So, uh, it just made sense, but I was originally looking for it for the vibration quality of it. Gotcha. Um, so then that, that, Oh, go ahead, Bobby. Let's, let's talk a little bit, um, about your limb choice, um, going with split limb over solid limb. It seems the industry's really went mostly all towards split limb. Um, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that and a little bit about your limbs that you use. All right. Well, if you, if you dig deep enough back in 2009, I introduced both of them. I introduced split limb and solid limb. Uh, I had a solid limb genetics and a solid limb cyborg and I had a split limb genetics and a split limb cyborg. So I tried all, I, I like both configurations. Uh, but over time I can just tell you, I can get more consistency in deflections and actually making that limb the split limb i just seem to get more consistency out of that uh the solid limb we would get them in and would basically get a machine down on material and then when you deflect it it was just a bigger honestly a little bit bigger hassle to try to get one perfectly matched up to where you can get split limbs matched up pretty easy you you can set um your tolerances and set your design and actually machine it down because these limbs are machine they're they're really ground but they're they're done with a cnc grinder if that makes sense but um anyway so they're ground down and you could just get a better better tolerance with the split limb um another thing is surface area you could get a little bit thicker limb which was a little stronger than having to go with a thin limb that was wider if that makes sense so you can see that a lot of times your uh, split limb is a little bit thicker compared to a solid limb that is thinner the other thing uh, you also eliminated a problem Uh, anytime you're taking something you're cutting a fork into it so we've got this solid piece of material and now we've cut the fork in it to put the cam in it you've created a weak spot where if you have the split limb there's one limb on one side and one limb on the other. And there's a gigantic argument out there. There are probably people that will comment on this uh, post, I'm sure, but are on this podcast. But uh, anyway, there's a gigantic argument, you know, oh, no, you know, now you got four limbs instead of two limbs. Well, technically, with those four limbs, we can get them honed in better and actually make them match better. So we, as a company, New Breed, all our limbs match. So all four of our limbs are exactly deflected the same. There's some companies out there that, you know, certain sides of the bow have different deflection numbers and it's okay. That, that is, I'm not 
making a negative statement there. It's okay to have that. It's just we're lucky enough with the two-track system going back, talking about the zero cam lean and the pressure that we apply to the bow, we're lucky enough that all our deflections are equal. So you can pretty well swap a set of limbs around and you don't have to worry about it. So it made it really easy for us as a manufacturer. We can sort of, once we get all the numbers correct, we can put the bow together and we're not having to worry about which side's on what side and left or right hand or any of that. And then limb stops versus cable stops. So you guys have both on your bow, but it's primarily the limb stops and the cable stops are backup, right? Yep. The cable stops are, are mostly backup. I mean, you can tweak them a little bit. You can put a little piece of tubing on them. You can build them up with heat shrink. Uh, I've had some guys that are uh, pretty smart guys out there that's decided to, you know, they work in different shops. They've made some of their own uh, cable stops. But my bow is definitely designed to have the limb stop. I'll just tell you, this is exactly how I feel about it. I believe in limb stops. It stops the camp. If you remember when we were talking earlier, the number one factor I have to deal with is the human. Okay. When I'm building, when I'm designing a bow, I got to come up with something that every human, they're all different. It's going to shoot it pretty much. So the same. And so one thing that with a limb stop, it eliminates somebody overdrawing that bow. If they say they're 29 inches, they're drawing that bow every single time to that certain point. Um, there's no way to technically overdraw. Now, obviously, you can get creep, which means creep is where, you know, you start easing off the bow and it starts going forward. But if if you shoot a limb stop bow properly, you will you will feel that you're against that limb stop the entire time until you release the arrow. And actually, it creates a little bit of back tension, which if you talk to a lot of uh, target shooting guys or guys that's been hunting for a long time, you want that little bit of back tension in your bow. But some companies have designed their cams in such a way that that they're they're forcing you into back tension to where if you relax just a little bit it actually wants to make the bow uh go back to its original state you know or close down and i did not want that so the reason i use the limb stop is you can still have a little bit of valley and you can relax just a little bit if you have to especially if you're a hunter and that shot presented itself but then it didn't present itself you can sort of relax just a minute and then get back into the wall right before you make the shot. Yeah. And you can fine, fine tune it too, right? It's like you can, if you want that nice Valley and, and let off, you can have it set there. Or if you want a little bit higher holding weight, you can just move that stop just a ever so slightly. And then it stops a little bit earlier in the Valley. That's right. A 32nd to a 16th of an inch on that limb stop is a big adjustment. Um, and I, a lot of people can't get over that. And then if you look on our cams, you'll see that the marks are about a 16th apart and that's it. And they're like, that's the difference between, and you know, I'm like, that's it. All you gotta do is, and they're like, oh, that's not gonna make a difference. And then they'll do it and they'll be like, oh, wow, that's a big difference. And I'm like, yep, just a little bit of tweaking is all you need. And that's another reason that I like the limb stop is you can make the bow, the bow a little more personal to you, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of adjustment that that, limb stop does for you and like you're talking about with the hunters especially you know if you have to kind of bend in an awkward angle or lean out you know you don't want it to where when you creep forward just a little bit you know the bow tries to go down on you you want to be able to be pulling against that that hard limb stop uh, it's a lot like a, a clicker on a recurve you need to be consistent on your draw length because that can affect everything in your bow oh absolutely i i'd say it actually made me a little bit better archer um, 
just over the years I've shot the other bows and you know if you don't have a limb stop and the and the bow is what they call spongy which means you know you can sort of pull it to the corner of your mouth and then if you really want to you can pull the bow to your earlobe you know and so uh you can get that little bit of sponge and so as a target shooter I was always having to remember exactly where my anchor point and I'm not saying you don't have to remember your anchor point but I mean I had to remember almost complete muscle memory of where I was anchoring every single time or I could make a bad shot and either hit a half inch higher or half inch low depending on where I anchored and so with a limb stop it definitely will allow you if you're not one of those guys that can get out every single day in the yard and shoot or or go to your local archery range and shoot or indoor somewhere it'll definitely allow you for that little bit of well I didn't get to practice because you know I work during the week and the only time I'm going to be able to go hunting is a weekend. So, you know, I might get two or three arrows off. You will definitely see if you buy a limb stop bow, you will definitely see an increase in accuracy between the times that you're not shooting your bow, if, if that makes any sense to you. So would it be accurate to say that either cable stops or limb stops could probably both be shot very well at an elite level, but the cable stop might take more practice, more reps to kind of maintain that, that proper draw length and make making sure everything's the same yes it yes i would i would definitely say that now you know there's there's some you know i'm going to be fair there's some bows that have uh some cable stops out there um that they have done a very good job of of sort of trying to take the sponge out of it so it it doesn't allow you to have basically from the corner of your mouth to your earlobe you know now it's from the corner of your mouth to just past your mouth or just before your mouth so i'm never going to say it's going to stop the bow as well as a uh as a limb stop because that cable just gives a little too much but um i would definitely say a limb stop and so i'll challenge you this uh, get a get a look and i had a limb stop from day one on the new breed bows i had a limb stop from day one but look at some and i'm not saying they obviously not new breed but um there were some other companies that had the limb stop as well but look at some of the bigger companies that never had limb stops that you know the last two or three years almost all their new designs have come out they got some form of a limb stop and that'll just tell you how much of an impact a limb stop has made in the industry and also you you kind of get uh, less wear where your cable stop is going to contact your cable compared to your limb stop so especially if you're pulling hard into your cable stop um, you're going to create more wear on your cable there compared to with a limb stop right right so let, let's talk a little bit about like the how you're making these things in the current model that you are right so obviously if you're working with a dealership you're making x number of bows setting out stock but like when when you get an order in your website now like where do all those components mm-hmm. start you just got like a bunch of bare risers basically sitting in your shop and as soon as you get an order that thing starts to get assembled or are you basically cutting a riser out as soon as you get an order how does that all work no no no. we we definitely have bare risers uh raw limbs we call them raw for the limb but same thing just bare sitting there and then um we have our pockets and cams all that stuff we have to make that you know in a mass number to justify the cost um you know, if I was making one at a time, these things would be $3,000, <laughs> you know, um, the, the, so 
I have to run those risers. I have to run X amount of risers. I have to run X amount of limbs. I need to run X amount of cams, X amount of pockets to justify that machine running um, to, to make those. And then um, we don't make our axles. I buy my axles. They're heat treated and they're specially tested. And so I want it coming from a different company. Um, so I always say that we're about 90% in-house, but there's a few little small parts that, that we buy because it just makes sense. We don't need to make them. Uh, we need to make them, we need to get them from companies that do that for, you know, that's their daily jobs. And so I don't want to get in the heat treating process and things like that of an axle. But anyway, uh, so we have, you know, quantities of those that we bought. And what happens is when an order comes in, now what we do is obviously being direct to consumer, what we used to do is we had a certain number of bows we'd stock up and then we'd save a few risers for special colors. But now everything's a special color. Everybody wants a bow built a certain way. So what we're doing now is we're basically waiting on the order to come in and then we have adjusted our paint shop to where we are painting them one at a time. We are assembling, which we've always assembled a bow regardless of when I was outsourcing all the way to now full assembly, we always assemble the bow one at a time, meaning that technician gets the riser, he gets those limbs, he gets all the pockets and cams and axles and shims and uh, strings, and everything is put together right there to where basically when he starts that bow or she starts that bow, they finish the bow. And uh, at the end of the day, the guys swap around and they look at each other's work just it's really more of a quality check, if that makes sense. I, I am proud to say that I feel like we pull a bow 21 more times than the average bow company. I worked for another bow company many years ago, um, and so I know the. It's not like I'm just saying that to say that. I do. I have been around some other companies out there, and I feel like we pull a bow 21 more times before we send it out the door than than the typical bow company, and that's. Because we're checking the quality, we're checking the timing, we're checking the draw length, we're checking to make sure our limb stops are correct. I mean, there's a lot of things that we're doing that most companies sort of send out and let the dealer finish, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. But we don't want the dealer to have to finish it when we were in the dealer network, and we definitely don't want the consumer to have to finish working on their bow. Um, but that's how we do it. And then I will admit this, closer to, to the hunting season, we sort of know what sales off of our website so we have a few risers already painted like the uh the mossy oak green leaf right now is sort of hot so when instead of just dipping one we probably have six or seven of those just sitting on the shelf you know ready to go if a guy calls up and wants mossy oak green leaf we've already got the components roughed out for that bow so we've done a pretty good job of figuring out what the consumer wants but we still leave a good bit of raw parts uh ready to be painted and then assembled in whatever the consumer wants. What's kind of the timeline of that aspect? So from the when the t time the order hits your website to the time you get the bow out the door to the consumer, what's we're looking at like a week, three days? And we're, we're looking a little longer than that. Um, I like to tell everybody we're an average of about uh, two weeks right now, and which is really good for a custom-built bow. Um, like I said, closer to the hunting season, we're going to get that last-minute impulse fire uh, and that's going to be the one that's a little hard to adjust to. So I tell everybody, buy your bows now if you want a custom-built bow, because that's what we're doing. Buy them now for hunting season. Um, but I, I have to admit, we 
we feel pretty good at that two to four week range that we're doing right now because there are some companies right now that produce factory colors and nothing special as far as custom made for an individual that is taking anywhere between six and 10 weeks to get those out right now. So I feel pretty good that we can custom build those. And I think that's because of the size company we are. I, I used to say we're a small company. I'm not going to say that we're small. We're an independent company. And so uh, we can make do a little bit better than some of the bigger companies that, you know, have to forecast. I, I can forecast what I want, but at the same time, I'm letting the consumer let me know directly what they need. So we figured out a, it's taken us a couple of years before I release this. It, we actually had been test marking this a little bit. How long does it take to do bows if the order hits the floor today? You know, and so anywhere between that um, two to four week range, we're doing really good on. And you guys got like 30 plus different options for colors right now <laughs> on the website, including things yeah. like ASAT, Cryptek, Kuyu, Mossy Oak, Predator. So it's like if there's obviously a ton of choices there. If somebody has a desire for something that you guys don't have on the website, is that an option? that you would entertain or pretty much is what, what is on the website? Is that pretty much what people have to choose from? No, we entertain a lot of things. In fact, I just had a conversation with the guy right before I got on uh, with you guys. He has a special camo that uh, I guess apparently one of his, his friends has designed and, you know, they're trying to figure out how he could get it. it they made some clothing. And so now they want to get it to hard goods. Um, and he wanted to know if I would be interested if I could do it on a bow because I had mentioned that we're a custom company. And, I'm, and so I have some avenues for that. That's a little trickier than most. Um, but if there's a pattern out there, there's a couple of things that we cannot do because of licensing. Uh, one of those being the, uh, the Sitka, what is that, Optifade by Gore. For some reason, they just have not licensed that to us. We, we've asked until the point that I said, well, I'm going to quit asking. And so I have. Um, they said that they only license to certain brands that do a certain amount of revenue uh, per year. And I get that. But, you know, I think it's really bad to hold me back because I don't produce a certain amount of revenue a year, if that makes sense. But uh, I can do about anything. If, if there's some combinations out there. Uh, there's another website called uh, TWMWaterTransfer.com, uh, I think is what it is. And if you find something on there, I can definitely put it on our bow. That's where we get our film from now, currently. Yeah, I think one of your the unique, cool colors is the uh, olive flag or the green flag. That's one of my favorite colors that you put on a bow. Yep, and that so <clears throat> that pattern... It's just a black and white flag. Originally, the the film was designed to be put over the top of a white base coat. And uh, the first time I ever did that, I put it over a white. I was trying to do a uh, a guy wanted me to make him. A, this was pre us even doing consumer direct. Uh, a, a fellow had reached out to me and he was trying to make a tribute bow to the veterans. And so he had found that pattern, and when I put it over the white, I was just like, oh, I don't know, you know, it, it looked good, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't go hunting with it. It was just a little too black and white, if that makes sense. And so started playing with, around with some different colors, and the first color we came up with, we call it uh, Desert Flag or Tan Flag. It's the one on our website. And then I moved into putting the olive color under it, um, 
And I just thought, you know what, that is a great looking bow. And so that's why at Newbury we're doing what we're doing now. I can offer a lot of things that a lot of the larger companies can't do. They're they're not going to stop their full production to figure out what color looks best under a film, you know. So uh, I'm real proud that we came up with that. That's that wasn't a standard color out there. We we took a film and then figured out what color looked best under it to make a camouflage with. My blade is the olive flag with the carbon fiber limb dip. And that's pretty, it is a pretty sharp looking bow. Yeah. I, I like that pattern. And, and so, you know, we're an American made company and then we get a lot of, uh, military, active military, retired military, and then, uh, you know, veterans that are out there that, they're sort of they're into bow hunting and they're looking for maybe a little bit different guy and they're looking for the all American made companies and we're we're one of them and so we do not mind doing patterns for those guys. In fact, if you look through, we have a lot of digital patterns. Um, I do a digital gray, digital tan, and then now I have a digital brown. And uh, that pattern probably stemmed from originally being uh, more of a military color that I started playing with some different backgrounds. Um, I really, I really do like that. That digital gray for me is one that stands out because when you get it up in a tree, I'm a tree stand hunter a good bit. When you get it in a tree, it just disappears. It's, it's just got the right tones, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'd agree with that for sure. Yeah. Um, I, obviously being in a Southern, company and we're based in alabama i don't know if i mentioned that earlier but we are based in alabama and uh so it's real easy for us to have the uh, mossy oak and real tree with we're more mossy oak that seems to be the pattern that a lot of our guys request down here and i tell you what i've seen a trend in the industry for right now and we we adopted it pretty fast is uh and now it's called old school it sort of makes me feel old but it's called old school camo and it's the stuff I started hunting with, which was the old mossy oak bottomland and the mossy oak green leaf. And uh, believe it or not, that's coming back for some reason. And it it seems like the uh, younger generation crowd. The I mean, I'm getting you know the that 20 to 25 year old is ordering green leaf, and they're saying, "Can I get that old school camo?" And I'm like, "Sure." <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so, I, uh, I look at green leaf, and that doesn't seem very old. Like it looks to me like a more of a modern pattern. The uh, the bottom land definitely looks more old school to my eye. Yeah, yeah. The green leaf to me was ahead of its time when they came out with green leaf. It was an awesome uh, pattern, and I I probably could dig around and find uh, find some of the old green. Leaf. It's probably turned almost ghost white now. Probably white, but <laughs> but uh, you know. So now maybe I should go go out and get me some new, and so I look sort of like it goes back, but. It is a great pattern. I, I have to admit it, 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 it blends in very well in the South down here. So I like it a lot. Yeah. I can remember hunting from the original real tree, tree bark, basically <laughs> when mm-hmm. I was a kid, I can remember hunting from that. And now, like you said, I hear people call bottomland old school. I'm like, that is not old school. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Gary, you know, but I'm, I'm into the traditional side of things, too. I shot a recurve for a long time, and uh, obviously I even got so dedicated here at Newbury that I wound up designing a riser with the guys from Stryker. I think you own one of those bows there, the RK1. Yep. But the funny part to that is I, I dig around sometimes, and I, I have a quiver. I have an old back quiver that was made 
years and years ago and it's in that tree uh tree bark pattern like their original tree bark pattern and when i get that thing out everyone's like what is that color where did that come from is that something new and i'm like no that's something very old <laughs> that's sort of funny to see that but yeah that seems to be the trend now and i like it i, I like it it's and it allows us to show a little bit of our roots a little bit you know like hey we were some of the original guys that wore this stuff you know so on the topic of that rk1 um so i guess one of the main reasons does it sound like that you guys kind of paired up with striker was it just that you wanted to pair up with somebody who really had the limb part of it figured out and you know that you could kind of tackle the the machine riser aspect of it uh yes so the quick story on that um rick and i met at an ata show archery trade association show and the way we met was a mutual friend and my buddy said, man, you got to go shoot one of these uh, longbows over here. My buddy Rick makes it. And I said, well, yeah, I'll get over to it. You know, we stay busy a little bit. And I said, yeah, I'll get over there. But he knew I was looking for one because I at least try to do a couple of traditional hunts a year just for me. I mean, nothing special. It's just for me to sort of stay close to my roots a little bit. I killed my first deer with a recurve. Um, so anyway i i usually try to do a couple of hunts a year with just a recurve or a longbow of some style and uh i got in a probably in that 2015 range i started feeling a little guilty because i was using a different name brand bow and i felt like i wasn't doing myself justice and i went through this mindset that i'd just make my own recurve and i was like ah, i don't know if i want to do that i did it when i was younger i actually made a self bow and then I tried to do a laminated bow and it didn't turn out the way I wanted it. And so anyway, um, the short version of that is I went over there and shot Rick's bow and I'm like, Whoa, this would make sense. I can shoot a custom bow and then I'm not really shooting another brand bow, if that makes sense. And, um, uh, I could be okay with it and everybody would just accept it. If I had a picture, you know, out there, cause obviously we're all into Facebook and Instagram and everything. And if I killed a, a doe or something and, and put a picture up people wouldn't be like oh look he shoots x brand you know <laughs> recurve and so yeah. uh i went over there and and started messing around and shoot and uh, i picked up rick's bow and i shot it and i put three airs obviously we're at you know 10 yards so i don't want to sound like i was just stacking airs but I almost robin hooded an arrow at 10 yards and so rick gets talking to me and i'm like well now do you have a left-handed one because i shot it right-handed <laughs> and, and so uh he was like wow, we, we need to talk a little bit. And so he realized that I could shoot a traditional bow. I wasn't just a compound guy. And so he came over and he's like, man, I've always wanted a metal riser. And uh, I said, you know, I said, well, I've always wanted a recurve in my lineup. And I don't know, a couple of phone calls later and a visit to his place and me dragging my computer up there. Um, it's like, well, I think we, we've got something. And so we started working on the RK1, and, it, and then we released it in 2017. So it took us a couple of years to get what we wanted. I will admit this, though. I am definitely the Carroll Shelby to his Ford. He, the bow is great. Um, their bows are good. I just added my little bit of flair to it. And then the one thing that I'm really proud of with the RK1 is that I put the Nibri grip on it. So if you are a compound shooter like me, mostly, but you want to shoot traditional every now and then, I can swap back and forth very easy with a torque-free grip. And I think we were the first company to actually put a true compound grip on a recurve. So pretty exciting stuff with that. Yeah, I love the grip on it. I actually run mine too with a, 
uh, wrist sling just like on the compound because there's been a couple times at the range when I switch over to the RK1 and I end up dropping the bow because I'm <laughs> shooting it the same way that I would with the compound. Yeah, and that's that's the whole idea behind it is I wanted to open up a new side of um, the sport to maybe some guys that were strictly compound shooters that's been a little nervous to to try traditional because the number one thing I would hear from people is like, yeah, man, I try to recurve, but that thing's so fat in my hand. I don't know. It doesn't feel good. And I'm like, well, when I got the opportunity to work with Rick, uh, he'll tell you, we went through several uh, several designs. But the one thing that I kept going back to every time he'd go, well, let's do this to the grip, I'd say no. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like, I'm like, no, we're not changing that grip. <laughs> so so anyway. one of my big questions was obviously, why did you go with that? style of limb mounting system instead of the ILF, you know, generic, everybody out there makes an ILF. Um, you want to stick strictly with strikers limbs that he had, um, or kind of what was the, the kind of mentality behind that? All right. So I said no to changing the grip, right? Rick uh. said no to changing his <laughs> limb pins. Um, <laughs> there was, there was a lot of no conversations in there. In fact, his son, Dusty, was the mediator between the two of us a lot. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the so I had designed uh, an ILF. I, I designed a little, or started with the ILF, and this is exactly what Rick told me, and I truly believe him. He said, okay, he said, Kyle, I'm going to go take one of your compounds, and I'm going to go get another compound, and I'm going to shove their cams on it, and then we're going to shoot it, and how would you feel? And I'm like, okay, point proven. So, uh <laughs> He, he won that very clearly. His system, he has perfected over the years, and it works. And so if we had designed a riser and he had, had to make some ILF limbs, it would have been great because his limbs are awesome. I mean, he really knows what he's doing in, in that side of the world. He knows how to make a, a traditional bow. I mean, obviously more than just limbs. He can make the whole bow. But the problem that he was that he explained to me, he said – Kyle, what are you going to do the first time somebody comes along and they buy another brand or a cheap set of uh, ILF limbs and they shove it on this bow and it doesn't shoot the way they want to and they're on the internet telling everybody that this bow isn't very well made. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. You know, don't give a variable that we can't control. And so we could not control what limb was put on the bow. Um so we just decided that it was best that we did not put ILF on there. Uh, going back to the never said never, we, we are never say never. Um, is there one in the future? Who knows? We talked about it, but we would need to sell it in a different way. I did not want the first recurve with Newbreed's name on it. And Rick did not want the first aluminum riser bow with his name on it to be made to where it wouldn't shoot as good as it shoots today. Well, and one positive uh, that, I think of that is the way that it's set up now is it it almost, in a sense, because it's simpler and because it doesn't have as many options for tweaking as ILF, makes it harder to screw up. I feel like a lot of times the guys get sucked into the um, the trap with traditional. They start changing things in the bow too fast or changing things in the arrow too fast, and a lot of times it's the shooter and not the bow. And just having that one few less things you can tweak around with, I think, a lot of times they'll force you to figure out what you're doing on the shooting side of things before trying to tweak something on the bow to fix what is really a shooting problem. That, that is so true. And so I'm going to admit this. 
that happens in the compound world too, man. Um, you know, I, I have to, once again, I'm going to go back to something I mentioned earlier. It is, it is actually harder to engineer something to be simple for the public to use than it is to basically create something that you can throw a bunch of variables into and just let it go. And then that way, if that particular item doesn't function the way it's supposed to, you can just say, well, it's because you don't have the variable tweaked right. Where on my end of it, I've got it to almost a simplistic way to where we've eliminated anything for you to change to where you have to shoot that bow the correct way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it really sticks to your mentality of you wanted it simple. You know, you wanted yep. your compound simple. You wanted your traditional bow simple. And like you said, you throw ILF limbs on there and there's a lot of tuning noise that can come out of ILF limbs. You know, so there's a lot of things there. So, you know, your explanation to me, when I first seen this bow come out, I guess it was 2017, I was kind of scratching my head wondering why, why wouldn't it ILF, you know, another company had kind of done the same thing, had their own proprietary limb mounting system for years and then went to ILF. And so I was, obviously I was scratching my head, but listening to you just explain it to me, you know, and it's like, okay, makes 100% sense now. So. Yep. Well, good deal. Well, that's what, that's what, you know, at the end of the day, I tell everybody this, if it's a new breed bow, this is truly I built that to be a tool. Now, yes, I wanted it to look nice. Yes, I wanted to have the correct camos and the right color strings and all that for people as well. That's why we offer all the customization. But at the end of the day, what I want it to be is I want it to be your favorite hammer that you know you're going to go get that hammer and you're going to go knock nails in and it's going to do what you want it to do. I want that bow. The best compliment that I get from anybody out there is – you know, I own several bows, and it's usually the guy, he's, he's owned a little bit of all of them, and he's probably got a couple of favorites, but he, he says this. He says, I've owned several bows, or it's the gal, I've, I've had them too, um, that said, you know, just at the end of the day, your bow is my go-to. I play with the rest of them, but if I've got a serious hunt or I'm fixing to go to a serious tournament, your bow is the one that I'm carrying with me. And to hear that is the biggest compliment I could ever get in the industry it's definitely got to be a nice a nice feeling i would imagine like for me once i initially started shooting your bows i really haven't even had the desire to ever pick anything else up you know um i kind of almost feel like for the number of bows that are on the market today and just kind of like the level where the technology is at it's like there's a lot of good bows and it ends up being like usually the one that you like the best or the one that fits you the best or has little things that you like it's not like like they're drastically different to the point where one's like super superior. It's like the little things like the, um, like the titanium built in for the limb bolts, the simplicity, of the two track cam system. Like those are the things that I particularly find that I like in the, the system. It's just really simple and like easy to use. And like I said, once I tune that thing, I don't have to worry about it really anymore. Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm going for. I want something that, that I get, other people that tell me, hey, you know, I, I got busy with life a little bit and I don't get to shoot every day. And, you know, I put my bow down for a couple of months because uh, my child was playing some sport and I just, you know, couldn't get out in the yard. But now it's time for hunting season and I went and grabbed my bow. And you know what? After about two arrows, I was hitting right where I wanted to out to 50 yards again. And that's the kind of compliments that I like to hear, too, is that, like you said, it's just simple. And um, the other side of that is by it being a tool. But I, what I did with a lot of the ideas is 
I did make it where if you went out west and uh, for me, I keep saying out west because I live in the east, obviously. But if you come to the east or wherever you go, if you travel hunt in, in any aspect, I wanted it to be simple enough that if something did go wrong, if you dropped your bow and something happened or whatever, that you could get it back up and running really fast without with minimal requirements. You didn't have to run off to the next pro shop or or Basically, I've, I've heard of horror stories of people having to go buy bows, you know, because they've spent a lot of money on a hunting trip and, you know, they basically dropped their bow off a canyon somewhere, you know. So, and then when they picked it up, it was in pieces and they didn't know how to get it back together. I try to get mine to where it could be pretty simple. If you walked into any archery shop, they would know how to work on that bow. For me, that's a, that's a real big thing is just, you know, with simplicity comes durability. Um, mm-hmm. I hunt with a guy out here out west that, I think I would treat an egg worse than his bow. Uh, he babies his bow like nothing I've ever seen because it's, you know, it bumps it on something. And next thing you know, he's off by eight inches. Whereas, you know, oh, I can man. remember a particular video of Garrett's where he's standing in the middle of a creek and tosses <laughs> his bow probably four yards into the other side of the bank just to be able to get across the creek. And that's like, that's, yep, that's the kind of bow that, that you need is you need something that is a tool. You know, I've, Traditional bows, especially, I've used more than my fair share of traditional bows as walking sticks or brush beaters in the past. So to have a bow that will hold up to that kind of stuff, to me, says a lot. Well, and it is, and and so that's it. All goes back to you know who who's the person behind the bow that's making the bow, and you know things have changed a lot in this industry over the years. I. I'm just going to say the hunting industry in general. I've seen a lot of things change from like a lot of the the products, and I'm not even talking about bows at this point, but a lot of the hunting products originally were built out of necessity because the individual was using something or wanted to do something that he couldn't get done so or she couldn't get done, so they built it. And, uh, and I would say that over the years – the larger the companies have gotten and the people who own the companies and small companies got bought out by big companies and corporations. And before it's over with, now you got people that are in this industry that maybe the first time they, they started using this product is when their large corporation bought the company. And now they sort of got moved over into it from, they might've been marketing magic markers, you know, and now they're going to have to market a bow. And so I think, where I feel really good that new breed is, is I've used a bow since before I was a teenager. And I feel like that there's a lot of things that I know that need to go into the bow to make it where it can be a tool on a daily basis. Yeah. One of the things that um, is nice too, as I'm browsing your website still is the fact that you can go on the new breed website and there's technical videos narrated by you, how to adjust the timing, how to, you know, set things up, how to change the mods. Like that's not, that's not typical information. Usually if a guy would just bought a bow, like he would oftentimes rely on his pro shop to be able to figure that stuff out for him. Right. But it's, it's really like you've made this to the point where a guy can buy a bow without having the fear that once he gets it, he's not going to be able to, to know how to set it up, you know? Right. Right. And, and just to get that, just to get that information directly from the designer and the president of the company, basically, that says a lot. Well, and so with that said, 
you know, we, we looked at it. I, I've got a, you know, my company's grown enough and I got a couple of guys involved that are partners. And so we talked about it and I said, look, I am no, you know, I don't need to be in front of a camera. <laughs> and that was sort of saying that. And, uh, but what we quickly realized is I could write all this stuff out and I could probably try to talk a marketing person into, into talking about the bow. But then what we quickly, quickly realized is that they couldn't relay the information the way that I could. And, uh, because I used the product. And so that's just, you know, they, everybody agreed. They said, well, we don't care if it looks unprofessional, but you just need to get out there and do it because you know how this thing works. And so um, we just went with it. And it seems to be working very well. I, I think that's one reason I like doing them now. And now that we've gone Consumer Direct, you will definitely see more from me um, with that. Uh, in fact, we're, we're discussing other avenues of ways that we can create uh, maybe some YouTube channels or something to be able to give a little bit more in-depth videos than just a few things that I have out there. So hopefully uh, down the road, we'll have a few more things that can help you, you know, tune your bow better, not just, not just our bow, but maybe all the bows, but hopefully that might drive you to want a new breed since I'm helping you get, get it done, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Were you able to get out much last season to do any hunting yourself? Or have you been pretty swamped at, at uh, just designing and building and getting bows out the door? Well, actually, I I cheated as much as I can on the hunting. So I try to go as much as I possibly can. Uh, you know, I, I've got a lot going on in my life. Uh, obviously, the company and changing directions was a big um, push forward for us. And so... I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of my hunting to make sure that we get the right thing out to the public. But uh, yes, I did get out. Um, I did not do as well hunting as I normally do, probably because I was, you know, in a, in the stand a couple of days, out of the stand a couple of days where I really like to try to do like everybody else. And if I can get a couple of stand, if I can get it, you know, a week in the stand at a time, I do a lot better. But um, had a couple of nice deer that, uh, that I probably should have taken, but didn't, I passed. And then, uh, I took a couple of does to fill the freezer and I feel pretty good about it. So I wish I'd have done a little better, uh, chasing horns, but that's not why I hunt. I hunt because I do actually eat the food. So, uh, I killed a few does and my freezer's full. And so I'm happy with that. The horns are just a bonus, you know, but sure. I did get to get it out a little bit more than I, I would say less than I normally do, but, uh, I got out as much as my wife said, I got as much as I normally do, I guess. <laughs> <So. laughs> yeah. How about you guys? How did y'all do pretty good? Y'all fare pretty well. I didn't do too bad myself. I, so opening morning of Wisconsin season, I actually shot a doe with the RK one. And then beyond that, I shot an additional doe in a Metro hunt in the twin cities here. And then I actually drove down to Bobby's parents place down in missouri and we hunted some public land down there and i shot an eight-pointer yeah that's cool man i i keep up with you man i i sort of facebook stalk you <laughs> so <laughs> I, I knew you had a pretty good one um and uh obviously that's that's how we met a little bit is i actually so the roundabout way um you know you weren't you weren't trying to hustle me into what you were doing I actually i think i had josh reach out to you first so he's our social media director i'd seeing what you had going on and 
that's who I want to be involved with. I want to be involved with the real people, not the people just trying to, you know, hurry up and get somewhere, but that are actually doing this stuff. And I commend you guys for the public land hunting. Uh, I've, I've tried it a little bit. I'm probably not as, as savvy as it is. I probably should be, but uh, I grew up, you know, my background is I grew up on a farm. So I, I got pretty lucky and had some farmland to hunt as a child. And then um, obviously I've gotten in a couple of leases uh, over the years and been in hunting clubs, but that the public land hunting is, is a real deal. You guys that go out there and do it every day. It's uh, I've, I've tried it and I definitely do it out West. That's a different story for me. I, I'm all public land out there, but over here on the, the East side, um, the public land, I, I'm probably still trying to figure it out because I find good spots and then I go back the next day and there's somebody in it. So I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't learned how, I hadn't learned how to avoid the hunter yet. I found the good spots. I just hadn't learned how to find the good spots that other hunters hadn't found already too. Yep. Yeah. The toughest, toughest thing is just being able to string enough days in a row to, to stay current on what the sign's telling you. Yeah. And I figured out that weekdays are a little better on public land hunting. <laughs> so yeah, anyway. absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah. So that's that's where we are. I I had a you know have a lot going on. Uh, I did have a pretty good season as far as filling my freezer, and uh, I, you know I had a pretty good string up until this year on uh, the horns. I've I've added a deer every year for the last few years to the wall. In fact, uh, Chastity, my wife, she said, "Okay, look, we're out of room. You got to you got to find something different to do." And I'm like, so then I told her, I said, "Well, you know, this summer maybe I should find somebody to add on to our house." That's right, there you go. <laughs> so that's where we're headed. But she's she's really good. She lets me. Uh, I sort of have the the north side and the south side of my house. I, the north side is uh, all the North American animals, and then I w- was lucky enough to go to Africa a few years back, and so. I went to South Africa, so I call that the South Side because I have several animals I killed over there hanging. So it's pretty nice. Nice. Before we finish up with you, Kyle, I want to I want to get your thoughts right now on what kind of arrow setup you like to run. It's an ongoing discussion um, between Bobby and I about <laughs> what we all feels the best. <laughs> Man, so and literally, I'll I'll try to do it if I get a chance. I'll snap a picture. But if you go out and look in my shed. I probably have more arrows than I do <laughs> anything else. Um, I have gone through over the last, and and I literally mean this. I I'm 45 and I've been shooting since I was 13, so I probably still have some arrows from when I was 13 out there somewhere. But anyway, um, I my arrow setup currently, I've I've tried them all. I've tried small diameter. I've tried large diameter. I've tried standard diameter uh aluminums carbons carbons and aluminums uh aluminum on top of the carbon carbon on top of aluminum i've tried it all at the end of the day i usually try to go by some front of center weight and i also try to diameter i probably found that i like a six millimeter or a 17 series diameter arrow which is a little bit smaller than a traditional carbon arrow, which is 245 diameter or a 1964. So a 1764 is a little bit smaller than that. I like that little bit of diameter because I really do believe it creates less wind drag, but it also creates less drag when it's going through an animal. Um, 
I run just a little bit of front of center. I'm not a big heavy front of center guy, but I run just a standard uh, like hundred grain head with a brass insert. So I don't try to run a hundred fifty grain head with a brass insert. I run a little bit of front of center because I do believe it helps. Um, and then I normally I shoot. I'm a twenty eight and a half, twenty eight and a quarter, twenty eight and a half inch draw. I shoot an average of sixty two to sixty five pounds, just depending on where the bow feels good for me. And I'm running about a 429 to 39 grain arrow, just depending on which, which way it runs out. Um, so I'm a pretty standard guy. I'm not, I'm not really a heavy arrow guy, but I'm not really a super light one either. I run about middle ground. You know, if you, if you do the numbers, I could run a pretty light arrow at 62 pounds, and I'm running a 429 grain arrow. So I, I like it a little on the heavy side, but I don't like it so heavy that, you know, it feels like when I shoot that, you know, I've got a pin gap. You know, I basically have a 20, a 25, a 30, and a 35, <laughs> you know. I like I like to have a 20 and a I, – I have what I call a close and a far pin. So I have a – if he is within a certain distance, he gets shot with a close one, and if he's a little out there, he gets shot with a – the far one <laughs> so them south alabama deer would be in the next county if you got too much weight up there on that area that's right that's <laughs> right yeah then you've been around alabama I, the farther I, I south guess, you go the quicker them deer get yes sir i guarantee you uh i tell everybody that i i truly believe that deer are born looking up here in alabama <laughs> so, anyway. so yeah but that's the setup I'll, and that believe it or not i use that setup um for everything i go out west i i've killed a couple elk with that setup and um i think i was more on the 65 side i I have to admit that i probably had more on the higher poundage just in case i got in that front shoulder a little bit and then uh when i went to africa i think i was at 64 pounds and i ran that same arrow setup and uh i mean i shot everything from something the size of a a small goat all the way up to elk size i killed a kudu which is about the size of an elk so i've tried it with it all and i've been very happy with that setup so i'm sort of a generic era guy i hate to say that but i am sticks with your mentality of simple is effective yep yep well and then uh the 1764 is starting to become more popular but um up until then, I did run the standard 1964 era strictly. So in case all my arrows got broke somewhere, I could just run into almost a Walmart and get arrows if I needed them. <laughs> so it sounds terrible, but I do like simple. Uh, I will admit this, though. I have played around with the tapered shafts, and uh, I do like those. I just I haven't found – nobody's making a light tapered shaft. That's the only problem. I wish they would make a lighter one, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah, so. I saw Victory came out with a a target tapered shaft at ATA this year. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what the the specs were on the the grains per inch or anything like that, but yeah, I think that was I haven't, I haven't. Yeah, I so for hunting, I do like a the reason I like the seventeen sixty fours is because it still takes a standard insert. Yeah, if that you know. So it takes a standard insert, and I like that. Um, if you start getting any smaller, if you start getting to that 204 diameter, uh, I like it, but then you have to use the inserts that either 
they're either an outsert that goes outside of it or either there's a, a hidden insert. And I'm okay with either one of those, but going back to the simple part of it, I can just – I actually – I'm still one of those guys that tune my broadhead. Even mechanical broadheads, I actually still tune my broadhead, meaning that I heat them up and turn them and rotate them and get them exactly lined up with the fletching, even on a mechanical, which I'm more of a fixed play guy, but uh, I have shot mechanicals. And I just, it's something about making sure everything's perfect, you know? Yeah. Well, on those, um, the arrows that I usually shoot with my RK1, I use those. Um, acerts and mm -hmm. that allows me to just always align whatever broadhead I'm using with whatever If usually I like to have my two blade broadheads vertical when I shoot and it just makes it yeah. so much easier on that standard diameter oh yeah I love the acerts I think in fact I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned it to you or you mentioned to me somehow we come in contact about the acert but I love that the acert and, and I run a standard diameter for it I I wish those guys that they would get more popular enough that, you know, maybe they would go ahead and make something for that 1764. Or, in fact, uh, if you call Jerry Webb up, he'll tell you that I spent a ridiculous amount of money to get him to, to make me a set for a set of 204 diameter. <laughs> I, I, I hate to even rem, I hate to even admit that, but I did. I wanted them. I had to have them, so he did make me some. And uh, I probably covet those a pretty good bit there. So, anyway. And so every time I shoot one of those arrows, I spend like an hour if I shoot through a deer or if I miss or something happens, which I, you know, <laughs> Get out the metal I spend detector. like an hour looking for that. Yeah, pretty much so. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, all right. Well, that, that gives you about my setup. Um, I, I wish, uh, coming back to the arrow, one thing I, you were talking about different releases. I did see, uh, that they released, I think it was like the T64 by Easton. That's a tapered shaft, and I got excited until I saw the weight of it, and I was like, well, I don't know. It's a little heavy, so I don't think I want to run that one. And well, uh, Yeah, they, they, uh, it's, all, it's all relative, right? Last year I shot 658 yeah. for my whitetail arrows, which was, which was nuts, but yeah. it's like it works until it, you start to run into those issues with the uh, – the trajectory of course right so I'm yeah, still I mean, at the part, point where I don't I don't have a perfect arrow like I have like a whitetail <laughs> arrow I have like a arrow I would take out west I have a turkey arrow like I have a different arrow set up for everything <laughs> yeah well well I'll share with you this um I'm, I'm that guy too I just when at the end of the day I wind up with that one arrow but I do have a ton of arrows and in fact I think I've shared with you I you know I have a spine tester that I use i in, in fact, uh, he'll probably stream me up, but I, I use the Black Eagle era a good bit, uh, Randy Kitts over at Black Eagle. I I just like him as a person, but I like his arrows. And actually, we had some arrows that he uh, built for us called the Shanks a while back. I don't sell them anymore. I may go back to it now that I'm Consumer Direct. But one of his arrows that I used was a Rampage, which is a 204 uh, diameter. I like that arrow a good bit. And... I would, but this was my little cheat to it. I actually used a uh, Easton hidden insert brass insert in there, and then I took a gold tip uh, ballistic collar and put <laughs> over it. So if that tells you how much tinkering I do with arrows. Uh, but the problem with that was I couldn't walk in any sporting good place. You know, if I wound up, I was travel hunting a pretty good bit, and if I wound up getting some arrows broken at the airport or, you know, lost or didn't show up, 
I couldn't just show up into any uh, sporting good place and get me some arrows cut and go hunting. And so that's that's why I went back to that uh, 1764s or the uh, 1964s, which is a standard diameter. So that worst case travel hunting, I could at least find me something that would work. You know, I've had I've had some bad episodes. I, we can laugh about it, but uh, I've had a couple of bows lost, which they got found, but they got found like three days later. So I missed three days of hunting. And then um, I've had a couple of arrow tubes that didn't show up. So I've learned my lesson on having specialized arrows when you travel. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you, I used to always wonder how how things like that got lost at airports. And then the longer I've worked at an airport, the more I realize, how does more stuff not get lost here? <laughs> yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. I, if I had to keep, like... I have a hard enough time keeping up with some of the things I do. If I had to keep up and track all that, and then some of the, the quick deadlines when airplanes are, you know, like I've been there before and like, you know, we've been late getting there and we've had to run to the next uh, terminal to get on your plane. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, if I'm running, how are they getting my baggage on here? But anyway, um, it's interesting to think about those kind of things. So uh, they do a really good job. I, I'm going to, you know, just because they lost mine, it just, it happened. But I'm left-handed, which I think, uh, Garrett, you knew that. But yep. So it's very, very important for me uh, not to lose, especially being in the position I am with Newbreed, it's it's very important for me not to lose a bow. And so uh, it's sort of funny, but I, I travel with two bows most of the time, and they're in two separate cases, and <laughs> I pay the extra money so that maybe one of them will make it as the hopes. <laughs> you know, kind of deal. Yeah. I've been pretty fortunate. And then when a buddy goes with me, what we wind up doing is we travel with two bows and then we'll actually put like, we both have double the buddy that I hunt with the most. We have uh, double cases. And so I'll put a bow. We'll put one of his bows and one of my bows in his case. And then in my case, I do the same. So that way at least something maybe shows up, you know? (laughs) Awesome. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your, your busy night to, to get on the podcast and talk with us. Absolutely. Yeah, no worries. Guys, I appreciate you having me. I, I really thank you a lot, and uh, I appreciate my little bit of technical difficulty earlier, so I know we're a lot later than we expected to be. So thank you all again, too. And, uh, look, just keep doing what you all are doing. Believe it or not, I, I listen to you guys, and um, I pay attention to, to what you all are doing because you all definitely are my talk radio for my 30-minute drive every day. <laughs> so keep doing it, and I appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks, thank Kyle. All right, thank you. All right, thanks once again for listening in, everybody. Make sure to follow and like the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network on Instagram, Facebook, the YouTube channel. Make sure to check out the DIY Sportsman YouTube channel as well. If you're interested in New Breed Archery, go check out their online store. You can check out all the colors, check out all the bow options. And if you are interested in buying a bow, go ahead and use that code DIY Sportsman, and you'll get $50 off. Thanks for listening.